Hello, and thank you for joining me today. I'm thrilled to be discussing a topic of great interest to me and many of my 40-something friends, menopause. In part one of this two-part conversation, I'm chatting with Dr. Carla DiGirolamo about the different stages of menopause, why there's much more to it than just hot flashes, and which types of tests are and are not useful. We also discuss the importance of fostering a healthy menopause mindset. Dr. DiGirolamo brings not only incredible credentials, but also a wealth of experience to the table. She has a PhD in molecular pathobiology and a medical degree. She's double board certified, both in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, as well as in obstetrics and gynecology. And she's a NAM certified menopause specialist. She's also a hardcore fitness enthusiast and certified CrossFit trainer and nutrition coach. Currently, Dr. DiGirolamo is a partner at Boston IVF, where she's been helping her patients navigate fertility challenges and menopause for more than a decade. You can find more from Dr. DiGirolamo on her website and on social media at Fit for Life MD. She also recently launched a great newsletter called Athletic Aging. Now, before we jump in, I just want to say that I feel strongly that the menopause conversation needs to reach well beyond those of us in the trenches. So please share this episode with others in your life so they can understand what you're going through and support you. So thank you for being a part of this conversation. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Carla DiGirolamo. Thank you, Chana, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. To get us started, I'd love to hear a bit more about you and how your huge passions for fitness and hormones came together. Sure. Well, I've always been an athlete from back when I can remember. I've, I've never been an elite level athlete, but I've always been, I played team sports. I played varsity softball, volleyball. I've always been into fitness in the gym. And that's always run in parallel to my career as a physician. Fitness has always been something that I would always go to on a bad day. It's always been my rock that I've turned to in, you know, times that are, you know, not so good, you know, the bumpy roads that everybody has. So it's always been there. It's always been my foundation. And and being a physician has been a passion of mine as well. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. I love hormones and everything about them. And uh, I've been a fertility specialist for 17 years. And I recently started to shift my focus into menopausal medicine because being a reproductive endocrinologist, it's a nice foundation for knowing how to manage menopausal women. And so it's interesting. I've had these two parallel roads and it wasn't until I started diving into menopause that I realized how intertwined those two roads were because I had decided to start my own coaching business where I do nutrition coaching. I'm a CrossFit trainer, so I have a functional fitness background. And the people that were coming to see me were menopausal women many of whom were athletes who wanted to maintain their performance, but were struggling because of the changes in menopause. And then it dawned on me, it's like, oh my goodness, these are where my two passions cross. And at that point is when I said, you know what, this is going to be my second act. This is going to be the second part of my career where I, you know, take everything I've learned as a fertility doctor. And now I can bring fitness, nutrition and medicine together and help fitness minded menopausal women. 
That is a wonderful intersection. I've always been passionate about fitness myself, and I can see that the role it plays in my life shifts over time, and its importance only increases in your 40s and beyond. Absolutely. It's something that's always there. It's something you can always depend on. Even through through injury, you know, and I've had my share of them, when you think your body is betraying you, and that that's a big theme, you know, for women going through the midlife changes that, you know, my body isn't doing what it's supposed to. And so many women develop this antagonistic relationship with their body. You know, this body that has served them and has done well by them for so many years suddenly is not cooperating like it used to. And I think one of the most important things to do as a coach, as a physician who takes care of these women is to try to reimagine that relationship and say, you know what, it's okay. I have a lower back issue. I have a shoulder issue. We need to work within that because it will get better and not turning into, I hate my body and I hate myself because that's like a a spiral that so many women get into. Yes. I'm really excited to talk about some of the lifestyle interventions we can do. And I know you and I have sketched out kind of a part one and part two of that. So I'm going to put a placeholder there to revisit that. But in in this part one here, where we're going to be talking about what is menopause and how do you know where you are in that roadmap, I do want to make sure we spend some time on just a menopause mindset and because I'm going through this myself and experiencing these changes in my body and kind of not sure what's the right approach on sort of acceptance versus resistance, you know, and what do you fight? What do you resist? And so maybe we'll do some of that as we reflect on, on kind of some, once we get through some of the basics and just definitions and some of those roadmap components, how does that sound? You know, that sounds great. And it's a really good idea because I find that many generalist physicians don't know how to define menopause. It's an elusive definition. And so the the technical definition of it, it is the point in time that is one year past your final menstrual period. So it's kind of a retrospective diagnosis because you don't know that you've had your final menstrual period until it's been a year from your final menstrual period. So it's like, we constantly go through, okay, is this the last one? And then six months later, you think it was the last one and then you have another one and then the, the clock resets. But when you're over 45, menopause isn't diagnosed with hormones as a general rule. Everybody thinks, okay, I'm gonna go have my hormones checked. It's gonna tell me if I'm menopausal. It's really not by hormones. It's by that one year past your final menstrual period. Now, sometimes we need hormones to support that diagnosis. If someone has an IUD, they're not getting periods anymore, they've had a hysterectomy, you don't kind of really know where exactly you are. And that's when hormones become helpful. But for the you know regular person that still has a uterus and doesn't have an IUD, it's one year past the final period. Hormones also helps diagnose menopause if it's early. So if it's under the age of 45, under the age of 40, and a woman doesn't have her period, she's having hot flashes and all the symptoms, we will check hormones to see if she has premature menopause. So that's kind of the basic definition. And the time that is the trickiest is the time from when we are no longer having children to that point a year past your final menstrual period. And that point in time or that that stage is about four to six years in length. So women typically are done conceiving around age 44, 45. The average age of menopause is 52. So there's a span of time there. And it's probably the most difficult span of time for women because that's when this whole transition is happening. It's like puberty going backwards. I mean, if we remember back when we were teenagers, what a struggle puberty is. You know, you wake up, you have boobs, you didn't have them yesterday, you've got hair growing in places. 
Well, menopause is the same, but it's reversed. We go from having periods and regular hormones to now everything is shutting down. So it's quite the transition. And this is where most women have their struggle is, you know, when their hormones are trying to figure out where they are. So that's the perimenopause, that time before you've gone a year without periods, but after the time which you're having children. So those are the two basic definitions that I think people often struggle with. So two parts of the roadmap I want to talk about are what's actually happening in your body during those transitions. And since you're the hormone guru, you can (laughs) elaborate on that part of it. And then how do those changes manifest in symptoms? And some of the symptoms don't really make sense or just not, it's not intuitive as an outsider, why hormonal changes would manifest as, you know, something like a heart palpitation. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a question that I could do a six hour talk on and still (laughs) only skate the surface of it. But in a nutshell, you know, estrogen is the major hormone that does a lot of stuff in women. And estrogen receptors are little proteins on the surface of all of the cells in all of our body that receive signals from estrogen and translate into a function for that tissue. You know, you have estrogen receptors in your brain. Estrogen interacts with those receptors and there's mood. You know, mood is something that estrogen has an impact on. Our bones, our muscles, our cardiovascular system, the inside of our blood vessels, our tendons and ligaments, our bladder, our pelvic floor, all of these different systems have estrogen receptors on them and respond to estrogen. So what happens in perimenopause is the ovaries are starting to put their feet up and take it easy. And so you don't have as much estrogen being produced. And it's not just a nice, even decline down a nice hill. It's all over the place because the estrogen plays a role in a very complicated hormonal conversation that involves the brain, the pituitary gland. And when the ovaries aren't participating in that conversation anymore, the pituitary gland hormone starts screaming louder, trying to get the ovary to respond. And so there's this whole chain reaction that that goes on down the line just because estrogen is declining. And so you have this domino effect chain reaction. You have all of these tissues and bodily systems that respond to your estrogen hormone. And when everything is in chaos, it affects everything. And so that's why there are, I don't know, I think it's something like 126 symptoms that are classified as menopausal symptoms. And the reason why we feel this from every system, from our moods and our brain to our bones and our muscles, to our bladder and everything else is because estrogen has such a profound impact on so many systems in our body. Mm hmm. And you're focusing on estrogen here, but I assume that's not the only thing changing. You mentioned the pituitary. So what are some of the other prominent players that change dramatically in this period? So you have estrogen, you have progesterone. Progesterone is the hormone that is secreted by the ovaries after ovulation. Okay. And estrogen and progesterone feedback on the pituitary gland and the hormones that the pituitary gland is secreting is follicle stimulating hormone. That's the hormone that tells the ovaries to make an egg. And then this luteinizing hormone, that's the hormone that tells the ovaries to ovulate the egg. And so when the ovaries are declining in function, 
they're not ovulating anymore. They're not producing much estrogen. And so that part of the conversation is absent. The pituitary doesn't know what to do about it. And so it starts secreting higher levels of FSH and LH. It's like, okay, I'm talking to you over here. I want you to make an egg. You're not listening. So it's going to secrete more message. And that's when people, when doctors check blood levels and the FSH is high, that tells us that you're at least probably in perimenopause, if not menopause. So that's the effect of declining estrogen is that other hormones that are depending on that estrogen production, they have to be over secreted to compensate. And it's kind of futile because the ovary is in decline. It's, you know, can't be resurrected. It just is going in the direction it's going. So those are some of the other hormones. There's also testosterone, there's DHEA, there's the adrenal hormones and the adrenal system is just a whole other can of worms, but the adrenals also have estrogen receptors on them and are influenced by that decline in hormones. So there's lots and lots and lots of hormones, but those are the main players that we think about when we think about what's changing in menopause. And what would you see if you did a follicular scan and the ovaries of, of a woman as she changes over time and how many follicles and like, does it, the number of follicles go down and really dramatically and you can like, does a postmenopausal woman, can you kind of see that on a scan? You can because the ovaries are really tiny. They're really tiny. So ovaries in a reproductive age woman are probably the size of a regular size chicken egg, not like the jumbo eggs or the extra larges that you get in the supermarket, but a smaller one, a little bigger than a quail egg, but smaller than, you know, a regular size egg. So around, you know, that size. By the time a woman is menopausal, they're probably the size of maybe a cranberry. So it really goes down because the ovaries are just, like I said, not functioning anymore. They do produce some very, very low levels of estrogen, some very, very low levels of testosterone, but really nothing compared to what it produced during the reproductive age. And so, yeah, if you did a scan on a menopausal woman, the ovaries would be much smaller with much less follicular activity. Mm -hmm. And so that brings me to a question I'm just curious about is what determines the menopausal age and is it you're literally running out of follicles or I mean how does that work it's mostly genetics so in the absence of tobacco use chemotherapy radiation or other environmental toxins or factors it's pretty much genetically programmed mothers sisters daughters will have their menopause at around the same time in the United States the average age is 52 it's one of the first things I ask my fertility patients as well as my, my menopausal patients is, you know, how old was your mother? You know, do they even know when they went through menopause? If they went through early, they usually know. And that's a very important piece of information for me. So yes, there's a huge genetic component to it, but we know that regular tobacco use can make a woman go into menopause up to four years earlier than she might normally. Chemotherapy can put a woman in menopause in her 20s, depending on when she had the chemotherapy. Radiation, same thing. And is the severity and symptoms of menopause, is that genetic as well? Not usually. That is governed by a lot of, we think, environmental and cultural factors. If you look at different cultures across the world, their menopausal experience is different. It's hard to sort out whether it's more environmental, cultural impacts, or if it's the gene pool of a particular culture. I'd love to talk a bit more about what to expect during the menopause transition, because this is not something that's talked about a lot. 
in public discussions. You know, you maybe pick up a bit here and there from a girlfriend or from your mom, but it's not something where women are given a lot of education and we kind of have to figure it out on our own. So can you shed some light on some of the most common symptoms during the menopause transition? Well, the most common symptom are vasomotor symptoms, which are hot flashes. About 70% of women in perimenopause and menopause will experience these. And hot flashes can come in many different, it's not like, you know, they're all this way or that way. I remember the first one I ever had. Now I'm a physician. This is what I do for a living. I was laying in bed and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm sweating. I feel like I have a fever. I thought I was septic and I was debating on whether to take myself to the emergency room. Okay. And then I Calm myself down. I thought about it and I said, all right, if, if I were the doctor in the emergency room, what would I say to this patient? And I'm thinking, all right, I'm in my 40s. I'm this, I'm that. Oh, wow. This is probably a hot flash. So, you know, I'm someone that deals with this all the time. And it wasn't even apparent to me exactly what it was the first time mm-hmm. it happened. But most people describe it lasts about maybe five to 10 minutes. And most people feel it's this heat that very rapidly goes from your chest into your neck, into your face. It can be very dramatic and it can cause significant sweating where you have to shed clothing or take the sheets off if you're sleeping at night. Some people wake up in drenched sheets. It can be that dramatic. Other people just feel hot. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, I got to take off my sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. And what goes along with that is this very narrow range of what is, from a temperature standpoint, comfortable. So if things get a little bit warmer, you're way too hot. If things cool down a little bit, now you're way too cold. You got to put on a sweatshirt. So your your range of comfort decreases and you're never really able to get comfortable sometimes. And so that is something that is attributed to menopause is very, very common. Glad we're talking about the range because I think that I've been experiencing it, but it's been on the milder side. So I dismiss it because I had it in my head that you had to be sweating through your clothes because after giving birth, I did sweat through my sheets and it was like a pool of sweat. So I thought that's what a hot flash must look like. But I realize I've, I've experiencing sort of a milder version of that, you know, waking up at night and feeling really hot and wanting to take all the sheets off, but I'm not soaking the bed. Mm-hmm. Like, And many people don't. I don't either. And what's funny about my own hot flashes is that they happen in my legs. They never make it up to my chest. My legs get super, super, super hot. It's the strangest thing. But I've never, except the one time that I thought I was septic, I never really had that experience either. But when it's on that more dramatic end, women can experience them like that. Or it can be on the other end of the spectrum where it's like, is this a hot flash or is it not? I don't really know. And there's a small percentage of women that'll never have a hot flash during their whole transition. God bless them. So they can really range in severity and in how someone experiences them. So what are some of the other ones that are fairly common? I think depression and anxiety is huge. I think it's bigger than doctors think it is. And the reason for it is because I was mentioning estrogen receptors before and just how many bodily systems estrogen impacts. The brain is one of them. And in our brains, there are hormones that are secreted, particularly serotonin. Serotonin is a big one uh, for mood. And we find that serotonin metabolism is a little bit different in the menopausal transition to 
the point where women are feeling more anxious or they're feeling depressed because that hormone is very responsible for that spectrum of whether we're sad or happy or, you know, scared or not. And that is one that we really have to look out for. And one of the things that I try to raise attention in my colleagues who are coaches and trainers is to be on the lookout for domestic violence signs. So no one really thinks about menopausal women and domestic violence, but they are a particular risk for this because of the depression and the anxiety. It creates a vulnerability that predisposes women to that type of abuse. So it's something that isn't talked about much, but it is there. And, you know, if you're someone that's kind of in this stage of life and you've never really struggled with depression, but now suddenly you are, that could be part of the transition. And you definitely want to get support for that. So that's a biggie. Well, I'm glad you're doing uh, what you can to raise awareness around that. And speaking of taboos, maybe we can talk about vaginal changes and that whole down there discussion. Yeah, sure. So that spans a spectrum as well. So libido, libido is a big one. Libido during our reproductive age is very cleverly engineered by nature. Around the time of ovulation, which is when the egg is coming out, we have a surge of the hormone called luteinizing hormone. That hormone not only tells the egg to ovulate, but it increases testosterone production by the ovary. When testosterone production goes up, libido goes up. And it makes sense libido should go up because the egg was just released and the whole goal is getting pregnant. That's nature's goal for everybody is to promote procreation. So when you're not having that regular ovulation, and on top of it, your adrenal glands are declining in their production of estrogen, I mean, uh, testosterone, you now have low libido or the potential for low libido. And what complicates that going back to the anxiety and depression is that sometimes there's strain on people's relationships. And so that feeds in to low libido. If you don't like your husband, it's going to be very hard to have sexual attraction for him. So you have the declining hormones. You've got a lot of the anxiety, depression that's factoring into it. And then the other thing that factors into it is vaginal dryness and some of the dysfunction, the urinary dysfunction that happens. So you kind of got like a trifecta of things that are really impacting our sexual function. So from a physical vaginal point of view, the estrogen, there's estrogen receptors in the vaginal wall, the, the tissue in the vagina starts to get thinner and more paper-like. It changes from like a nice squishy, cushiony rubber glove sort of thing to more like paper thin. And when it's paper thin, it doesn't lubricate as effectively and it can be painful because you don't have the lubrication and you don't have the thickness of that tissue. Sexual responsiveness can decline as well because the nerve endings are affected, you know, in your labia, the clitoral region, the vagina. And so a lot of women are seeking help with, well, what do I do about the vaginal dryness, the vaginal pain? And there's lots of strategies, you know, non-hormonal, hormonal things that we can do to help that. Incontinence, is something else because I mentioned the pelvic floor is something that's impacted by changing estrogen. And when you sneeze, it's going to be a little bit tougher to hold in your pee. If you're at the gym and you're doing jump ropes or double under jump ropes or hopping or jumping on, on doing a box jump in the CrossFit box, you might pee. And that's another thing that happens a little more frequently as we go through this stage. So there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of it is intertwined with one another. 
Yeah. I'm hoping that it's not just the people going through menopause, but their partners that are listening in today or that you'll share this with your partner. So what advice do you give to the partners who's living with someone who's going through this? I would say communicate, you know, communicate, ask her what's happening. What are you feeling right now? Help me understand. Help me understand is a really great phrase. I'll tell you about my husband. So he never said this again after I was done with him. I was upset about something that he and my son did, and I was kind of on a tirade about it. And he looks at me, cocks his head and says, are you having a hot flash or is this a menopausal thing? And of course, you know, I exploded after that. It's like, no, it's not menopause. It's because you did this. That's not the right way to ask someone how they're feeling. You want to say, honey, are you okay? What are you experiencing right now? What's going on? Ask an open-ended question. Don't draw conclusions. Don't be judgmental. That will make things worse. So that would be my biggest advice to the partners is just communicate and be willing to learn about what she's going through. Yeah. Yeah. I want to shift soon to the menopause mindset because I want to talk about what does this all mean and how do we deal with this? So many changes, but just to make it really concrete, first of all, let me talk through some situations and where, you know, is it menopause? Am I there yet? So one situation is mine where I had a Marina IUD for five years and I didn't have any periods on it. Mm-hmm. And I suspected that I might be a candidate for early menopause. And so after I had my IUD out, I did ask my doctor if she would measure FSH and she did that. So I'm just wondering, and it was indeed very high. So I'm wondering in general, your advice for those who are on an IUD and not getting periods and when is it appropriate? At what point are you a candidate for testing? I'm 45, so I'm kind of right on the cusp of, is it early menopause or is it kind of regular menopause, I guess? Well, honestly, it's not something that we have to test for and diagnose, you know, unless someone is experiencing something disruptive. So say, for instance, you were having debilitating hot flashes that were interfering with your sleep or your daily life. Come to me and I would be checking more for like thyroid and other reasons, other causes for your hot flashes to try to figure out, is this part of the menopause transition or is this a thyroid condition that we need to treat. If you're someone that's kind of going along and doing just fine and you're not experiencing anything that needs to be addressed, you don't have to diagnose menopause. You just kind of go along your merry way. And if something develops, you know, you want to go for your well visits and you want to get your mammograms and do your colon screening and see your primary care doctor every few years or so. You definitely want to do that because you want to do your preventative care. But unless you're experiencing something that's disruptive or that you're concerned about, there's no need to diagnose the point at which you become menopausal. I guess the reason that I'm interested in knowing that point is because I have a bad family history of osteoporosis. And my understanding is that the bone density decline happens pretty rapidly after menopause, that there's kind of this drop off and then maybe stabilization or or slower decline. And so I thought, well, I don't want to miss that window where those first few years seem like they're the most critical from the bone density perspective. Sure. Your primary care doctor, if they are managing menopausal women, they would want to screen you for risk factors for osteoporosis. So if you are a Caucasian, if you have a BMI of, I think, less than 21, if you have a mother who has osteoporosis diagnosis or a history of a hip fracture, 
at the time you become menopausal, you would want to have a bone density scan. So yes, so the time of menopause would be a time to do that. Now, if you don't know exactly when you've gone through it, at 55 is probably when I would do a baseline because 95% of women are menopausal by 55. So you would want to have it then, have your baseline then. And then if it shows that you're in the normal range, you probably wouldn't need another one until you're 65 unless you have a fracture. If you have a fracture, then we would do another one and see if there has been any significant decline. So that's kind of how we would manage that. If we don't know the exact point in time at which someone is menopausal, and many times we don't, at 55, somebody with risk factors absolutely get a baseline bone density scan. And so another situation that women might find themselves in is maybe they're experiencing menopausal symptoms, but their periods are still regular. Does that happen as well? And what does that mean? So many people experience menopausal symptoms in the perimenopause. That's when those symptoms really start is in the perimenopause. So yeah, they can still be having periods and have all of those symptoms because in perimenopause, you're still having periods. They may not be regular, but you're still having them. And that's when some of the most severe symptoms happen is in perimenopause. And then sometimes symptoms actually get better in menopause because in menopause, the hormones have calmed down. The reason why the body reacts so vehemently the way it does is when everything is changing and when everything's chaotic, Mm -hmm. that causes a more dramatic experience because the body doesn't know whether it's coming or going. But once menopause has happened, everything is settling out to a new normal and some things will get better. Some things won't like vaginal dryness and the uh, urinary symptoms. Those don't get better. They get progressively worse, but the hot flashes oftentimes will settle out and um, some of the mood stuff may settle out as well. So let's start to wrap up with just the mindset. So it sounds like a pretty bleak picture in a lot of ways. So what advice do you get for women who are going through this on how to, how to approach it? Well, I think it's only bleak if we choose to view it that way. I mean, did we see puberty as bleak? I mean, let's think about puberty. That's really hard. Your moods are all over the place. Now you're getting these periods all the time. I didn't have these before. Oh my God, I'm getting them now. I've got period cramps that have me in bed for two days. We don't think of puberty as bleak. I mean, let's talk about pregnancy. Pregnancy, oh my God, there's even more changes. There's morning sickness. There's, you know, all of the challenges that come with pregnancy. We don't look at pregnancy as bleak and we shouldn't look at menopause as bleak either. It's just one more change that we go through as women. In another podcast that I had done, I refer to women as hormonal chameleons because we are changing all the time. And I think society has kind of brainwashed us into thinking that it's bleak because society is thinking, okay, you know, there's really no use for us anymore now that we're getting older. If you look at Asian cultures, this is when women are revered is because they have the wisdom of life behind them. They no longer have periods. So let's turn it around. We don't have to have periods and we don't have periods anymore. We don't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore if we don't want to. We're at a stage of our lives where our careers are usually pretty well established and our kids are grown and they're off on their own. Now it's time to really enjoy life. We've gathered a lot of wisdom throughout our lives. We have more freedom now. To me, it's not looking bleak. It's actually looking pretty good. So yes, there's change, but there's change through every hormonal stage we've gone through. We just have to know how to navigate it. But the first step is to not think that it's bleak and that it's negative, is to put the positive spin on it. Because all we have to do, just like every other stage, is just figure out how to deal with it. 
That reminds me one symptom we didn't talk about that's on a lot of people's minds is body composition changes. Mm -hmm. And that is one that's very hard not to view as bleak when you've been told the ideal is to have a certain silhouette. And just like your body changes its shape and its proportions at puberty, it changes again at menopause towards, you know, more abdominal centric Mm -hmm. weight gain. So what do you say about that situation? Yeah, it's a situation that's complicated. Yes, our body composition changes. And I think when we think about, again, it's about perspective. You know, what kind of sick and twisted society expects us at 60 and hold us to the standard of when we were in our 30s? I mean, think about it. How twisted is that? For society to expect a 60-year-old woman to look like she's 30, to behave like she's 30, at what point do we as women say enough and say, be damned with what society thinks we should be? We're going to pave our own way. And I think I got to that realization when I was 40. And I thought my 40s were the most liberating time of my life because I finally stopped caring. You know, when I was a younger athlete, I used to have pretty big muscular legs. That was just how I was programmed. And I remember, you know, going to the gym and having people that were close to me say, you know, your legs are getting too big, your legs are getting too big. And of course, this is the 80s, right? When thin is in and everybody's got to be skinny. And I literally stopped working legs because I got hung up in that body image thing. And now Mm -hmm. I'm 52 and I'm paying for it. Now I'm doing back squats till the cows come home because, you know, I'm very upper body dominant and I need to get my legs to catch up. And I wish to God that I didn't feed into that societal stigma of what I was supposed to be. But, you know, when you're a teenager and in in your 20s, we all fall into that trap. So enough is enough. You know, we're in this age where we're smarter than that. And of course, we all want to look good. Of course, we want our body composition to be what it was before. But it's one of those things where we want to be healthy. Our health should be the primary component. And if your fitness is sound and your nutrition is sound, the mirror will follow in a healthy way. We gain fat because it helps our bones. It helps prevent fracture because adipose tissue holds on to estrogen. And that's one of the things that keeps our bones healthy. It is hard to accept. I mean, I look in the mirror at my abs and say, oh my God, am I smoothing out? So yeah, it's still there, but I don't let it drive my attitude about how I move forward in managing my own menopausal transition. So that's what I have to say about body composition. I I love that very powerful message. We're better than that. We're smarter than that. Yeah. I say it to myself in the mirror every day because it's a struggle for me too. I truly believe it. I do every single day, but I do look in the mirror every day, just like everybody else does. And I have to remind myself and I have to say it to myself every day. I hear you. I hear you a hundred percent. So let's wrap this up with some resources for finding more of your work and more just general menopause education information. Sure. So I have a blog. It's called Athletic Aging. And the URL is simply athleticaging.blog. It's uh, on a Substack platform. And uh, every Monday, I put out a functional fitness workout. Again, I'm a CrossFit trainer, so I have the training to program functional fitness, which is very good for women in midlife because we need plyometrics, we need strength training, we need HIIT training, we need all that. 
And so my workouts are such that it incorporates all those things, allows anyone of any fitness level to do it. I put modifications, movement videos, things like that. That's every Monday. And then every Thursday, it could be anything from a medical review of an article that was just published in a medical journal. I try to digest it and translate it into something that lay people can understand. I do an inspirational stories series where I get stories from female athletes who are 50 plus who have these absolutely amazing stories that I share with the world with their permission, of course. And um, I also have some original work that I do. So twice a week, it's an email that comes from me. And that's where I'm doing most of my stuff. I do a lot of podcasts. I do a lot of stuff with Feisty Media as well. Feisty Menopause is a great Facebook group that many women have found. They're awesome. That's my tribe that I find my support from personally. And the other place where I encourage women to look for good menopause resources is the North American Menopause Society. So NAMS, N-A-M-S, their website is full of really, really great stuff on just the basics of understanding hot flashes. What about bioidentical hormone therapy? You know, things like that, Uh, sleep and depression and things like that. So those are the resources I would point to. But again, it's athleticaging.blog if you want to check out some of my work there and get a really good workout every Monday. Well, I got to try one of your workouts. I, I have to admit, I'm on your emailing list, but I haven't tried the workout. So I'll have to muster up the courage to just jump in there and do one. <laughs> Absolutely. But thank you so much for your time and for all the outreach you do to help women get access to actionable, reliable information. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.